0: Today on the podcast, we welcome Dr. Justin Holcomb. Justin is a pastor, he's a professor, and he's an author. And today we focus on one of the things that he's studied and and written quite a bit about, and that is the area of sexual abuse and helping people recover who have been victimized. And so we have a pretty wide ranging discussion as it relates to um, those that have suffered in this way and those who are parents and those who are leaders of organizations on how to prevent these things from happening. So it's a a pretty intense conversation, um, and I found it extremely helpful. I hope you do as well. Justin, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Why don't we start by just getting to know you a little bit? Sure. I'm
1: 46 and been married for 13 years to my wife and we have two daughters who are 10 and 12 uh, right on the cusp of 10 and 12 so i'm going with the numbers that they would prefer Um, and uh, really in addition to those calling responsibilities and joys um, i'm a minister um, work for the Episcopal Diocese of Central Florida, and oversee our discernment process for ordination to be a presbyter or a priest, which is Old English for presbyter. Uh, and when I'm uh, in addition to that, I get to teach at a few seminaries, Gordon Conwell and Reformed Theological Seminary, and uh, write. And so, writing, teaching, and uh, ministering are the doozies. And focused predominantly, thanks to uh, marrying my wife, and um, well, when, even when we were dating, uh, she was a case manager for a domestic violence shelter, and a uh, then after we got married, case manager for a sexual assault crisis center, and um, I actually had uh, just had the opportunity to start uh, kind of advocating for survivors, but also working with organizations. On sexual abuse and domestic abuse and other types of abuse, so that's been something that um, wasn't, you know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, wasn't part of my plan. I didn't think I'd be doing that kind of stuff. Um, so it's neat seeing how um, relationships and friendships, you know, influence trajectories in such a meaningful way. So that's yeah. the kind of thirty thousand foot view, if that's the saying. Is it thirty thousand foot? I view think it's thirty thousand. Yeah, yeah,
0: we're flying pretty high. 30, yeah. Okay. Man, so um, I'd love to chat with you about your book. I think that's the way that maybe most people know you. What's uh, the title of the book is Rid of My Disgrace. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, there's that's the main one that people know with regard to abuse issues is Rid of My Disgrace, subtitled Hoping Healing for Victims of Sexual Assault. There's another book called Is It My Fault? which is hope and healing for those suffering domestic violence. Okay. Uh, So um, only because we wrote the book on sexual assault and survivors and pastors said, hey, we've been given the sexual assault book away for domestic abuse because there's so much overlap, but it'd be be nice if we had one on domestic abuse. And so uh, that's where that one came from. But those are the two uh, books for survivors. And we wrote another one called God made all of me, which is a children's book um, to help it's subtitled how to help children protect their bodies. So have helping parents and families have the conversation about, um, appropriate touch, inappropriate touch. We don't have secrets. What are your body parts? What are the names of your private parts? So help preventing that kind of stuff. So, but yeah, rid of my disgrace, going back to your original question, rid of my disgrace was came out about just uh, like just over nine years ago, I believe. Um, and, uh, that one has, um, that one's the one that's been out there the most in the yeah. sense of uh, that w- we were shocked. There, there wasn't a lot of book, aren't a lot of books on that topic. And they, there wasn't back then, um, like especially heart.
0: from a Christian perspective.
1: Yeah. Um, there was wounded heart by Dan Allender. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and so we, we just thought, well, well I guess we'll do, it. I mean, the book actually came out of my wife. Um, uh, my wife was a a survivor advocate and she was doing a meeting with women in a women's federal prison in Virginia. Okay. And as she was just doing like kind of, uh, kind of customary, here's some information about sexual assault and abuse and some of the resources available to you. Many women in prison have experienced that before in in prison. And so she was there to advocate and help and she was pregnant uh, with our first child. And they said, Hey, tell us about, you know, you're married. We see your ring and you're pregnant. Tell us about your husband. She said, Oh, he's a, he's a minister. And they said, Hey, we're, we're all Christians. Can we do this conversation about sexual assault and talk about Christian faith and Bible stuff? She said, Sure. And so she came back and we, we worked up a, um, an outline, uh, and some main teaching points that would be what she's doing on education advocacy with kind of a theological biblical reflection on hope and healing on sexual abuse. And uh, that ended up becoming basically the kind of the skeleton of rid of my disgrace. So it it was started by on the ground in a prison ministry for sexual assault survivors um, who asked for a kind of biblical theological, you know, reflection on sexual abuse. But yeah, it's, it, it, it's a distinctly orthodox, traditional, classical Christianity. Um, there's, you know, it's all Nicene Creed and authority of scripture with no crossing of the fingers. What does that type of theological commitment mean with regard to sexual abuse? So before your wife
0: had this conversation, um, had you been thinking about these themes much in your life in terms of an author or a teacher?
1: Never as an author or teacher, I had thought about it, uh, before this conversation Lindsay had with the women in the prison, uh, we would, you know, we'd go on dates. I mean, she was, she was a case manager. So we'd go on a date right. and say, check in like, Hey, what, what was your day like? She'd, Oh, well, um, you know, had another woman, you know, come in, her husband's a police officer or the local minister in town in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, she'd tell the story and I just, you know, listen to these stories. Um, she'd tell me about some of her trainings that she was doing and she was leading a court appointed anger management class. And she's also fluent in Spanish. So, uh, court appointed, uh, men whose primary language was Spanish. Um, she was leading those classes. And so it was part of our conversation, um, that got things started, kind of professionally and that prepared me to then uh, I was studying with her working on a book and then I was teaching at the University of Virginia. I I had a few classes I was teaching it's called general faculty teach two to three courses a semester and I was teaching for the religion department sociology department and I developed a course called uh, violence gender and poverty and started teaching that. Or sociology department in the studies of women and gender program, wow. and so I started developing, like, how does how does violence coincide with uh, gender and poverty issues globally wow. with regard to trafficking, disease, um, abuse? Uh, so I started getting into the research on that, but then personally and pastorally, so you know, professionally with teaching, my teaching and my wife's advocacy. Uh, pastorally, I was already hearing stories because as a minister, people tell you uh, are more likely to tell a minister some of their dark experiences right. than just you know, just your friends because they, you know, confidentiality, they think that you might have some insight and wisdom. So pastorally, I was already hearing some of these issues. Um, not a lot, not as much as I do now, because uh, I'm known for this now, but then personally, it was on my radar screen because I had a distant family member, um, do some sinful and inappropriate things when I was 10, 11. Um, it was dealt with pretty swiftly. So to you, God, to me, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. To me. Thank Thank you for the clarity on that. So I was, I, I experienced, uh, uh sexual abuse. Mm. and So, but it, it, it was something I knew about, didn't minimize it. It also, the effects didn't, um, didn't take hold as significantly as they could have, partly because of God's kindness, mm-hmm. like my, par- my good parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and they were helpful. Again, good parents doesn't doesn't mean anything. I mean, darkness is darkness, regardless of how good the parents are. I just think that God used my parents and for whatever reason, um, his kindness. Um, and I still know some of the effects and I can see how they've influenced me. But so personally, professionally, and pastorally, it was all coalescing. Yeah. So, uh, Are you willing to share about your experience? Not, so? not too much. Um, just uh, I, I want to, I, in the sense of it was a, it was a distant male family member. Yeah. Uh, not a very close family member yep. uh, who uh, was trusted and misused his access to me and, um, and things he did and asked me to do were very confusing for a 10 10 and 11 year old right uh, and made me think about sexuality um shame uh, guilt um is there's something wrong with me so yeah. there, there I mean I um I I just think for the sake of anyone listening uh so I'm happy to talk about it I just don't want to get into too many details
0: yeah that's yeah of course I guess I was just thinking about um i I guess my thought is there are a lot of young uh families at our church, and yeah. um we're you know this is just a, something that's on the radar for so many people, and you've got young kids as well i mean you have a you have kids that are about the same age as when this happened to you right
1: yeah yep i'm I'm right in the middle so, so how I, do you
0: yeah justin how do you think about this as a parent? Because I feel like there's two poles we could err on. One is just paranoia, where I just assume, like, I can, I can get into this. I can get into some paranoia in my own head because I can err on the side of, of worry um, and thinking that everybody out there is an abuser and I have to put my kids in some type of bubble, which we know isn't, isn't realistic. Um, on the other hand, being really just passive and um, not vigilant at all, so can you talk about that? Um, how well, do you good. think through that? How good. do you think about that as a parent yourself? And what do you share with other parents in your area of, of uh, shepherding?
1: Yeah. Um, let me start with some realities about uh, boys or young men or men who are victims of sexual abuse. Uh, there's a lot of shame involved in general with regard to sexual abuse of uh, for girls or women. Um, but... As, there's an added layer, both, especially if the perpetrator is a male and the, bullet, the victim is a male, there's an added layer of shame. Um, and because of the way that American culture and also some Christian culture talks about manhood and masculinity uh, being seen as a victim or uh, weak because you let something happen to you, sometimes how it gets done, or it's, it's talked about in unhelpful ways. So it causes an added layer of shame for many men. Uh, that's important. It, it's interesting statistically. Um, the average perpetrator has, in a lifetime, a uh, hundred who who assaults males has a hundred and fifty two is the average. Hundred fifty two male victims in their life. The average perpetrator who perpetrates predominantly against girls has an average of like, I think 20, maybe 30. And so what that means is that, um, there's a, there's a few things going on in that statistic. What strikes me is that there needs to be more vigilance, additional vigilance for boys. Also, there seems to be some type of parental, like, Oh, Hey, he's with a guy who's from the church. He's probably safe. It's kind of assuming, um, heterosexual heteronormativity type of like, you know, Hey, everyone the setting's going to be attracted to uh, opposite sex is not helpful because most perpetrators who are men actually attack boys and girls, but there's a lot more male victims. Um, and so I think parents are letting their guard down around boy with their boys more than they should, assuming way too much. So that's kind of just the issue in general. Um, perpetrators, uh, known sex offenders, like convicted child molesters. Um, <clears throat> there's a book by Anna Salter, S-A-L-T-E-R. It's something like, uh, I can, we can, you know, look it up, do a quick Google search, but it's like rapist predators and molesters, something like that. She interviewed, she's a, she's a specialist on sexual, uh, known sexual offenders against children. She interviewed them and it was some chilling stuff about how much they like church because church is the easiest place one because they're always looking for volunteers they'll give you easy access for some reason churches assume the best about people even though we have a doctrine of sin that says we shouldn't assume the best about people if anyone has a category of sin and suspicion it should be the church but organizationally we seem to be like the most loosey-goosey and they assume the best about people and just hand over access and so there are some chilling quotes about, Hey, best place to go is church. Um, so I make sure I tell you're not, you're not helping me with my paranoia. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm, I'm trying to, (laughs) I'm with you. Yeah. Um, I I'm trying to not encourage, uh, that you let go of the paranoia. Yeah. Uh,
0: I'm I'm with you. It's, it's really chilling.
1: But what you don't want to do is create a culture of fear. That's not helpful. Right. So yeah, Um, it feels like
0: we need to get into these details. Yeah. So keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but like that's,
1: well, there was one church where we said, Hey, uh, you guys need to have some, um, background checks and interview volunteers, Mm -hmm. like really basic stuff. Like anyone would do that. And the response I got back from the person was, we're a family. We don't want to, and it's not a family sized church in the sense of like, you know, 75 or less. Yeah like three or four hundred people I'm like sure yeah, we don't we don't want to we don't want to lead through fear and right. I was like uh yeah you do actually mm-hmm. he, I mean just basic standards and so um, the parents need to be vigilant ask questions when you know one of my friends Boz um he's on the board of grace I'm on the board of grace godly response to abuse in Christian environments he's also on the board and he told a story about And as this is his specialty, this is what he knows. And, um, he went to go visit a church, had his, you know, he has three daughters. I don't know how old they were, but he he said, I remember walking up to the, the children's ministry, handing over some of my daughters, not knowing where in the world we were, who was there and just walking away to go to church for an hour. Right. And then it hit me in the middle of the service. I don't even like, who's in the room. I don't even ask, didn't even ask questions. Right. So He realized that he did this. And so what we're now, we're pretty vigilant as parents. We've got um, the stranger in the bushes is not the biggest threat. Statistically,
0: the statistically someone just random grabbing your kids off the street like that does happen, but it's probably rare, right?
1: Yeah. Predominantly, uh, the statistics say that about 60 percent are family members, uh, 30 percent are acquaintances and seven to 10% are uh, strangers. And so what that what that means is that the child is most likely going to um, be abused by someone that is trusted and known to them. And so being, uh, so the stranger danger thing is important. You gotta, you know, it's just not the top importance. It's not the biggest priority. Sure. On, online is the grooming area with games and chat features. And so we're seeing a lot more. So parents need to kind of be more locked down on technology. Yeah, I know, spent, what
0: you're, know what your kids are into technologically.
1: And know what the access points are, know which games are going to be issues and chat features and that kind of thing. So I spent three hours yesterday just locking down my daughter's Chromebooks. Um, gotcha. and that. But then also, I mean, we don't do sleepovers. With our family, most most families that we work with don't because either they've been on the they've they've seen the the danger of some of those. Um, We also just don't assume the best about you know all family members, Um, and so there's a vigilance. You know, we can get into details. I'm happy to get into details, but I don't want to I don't want to go down the rabbit hole unless it's useful for you. Um, So. Yeah, I mean,
0: I think that would be useful. Just in terms of um, what else do you think about in terms of practical helps for training parents?
1: Well, let me go over a few of the. Um, I actually just want to make sure I got my statistics accurate. So no, that's good. Let me let me just uh, just want to double double check. I, I thought I got them backwards, and I did. It's thirty five percent are family members almost 60% are acquaintances. I flipped the family. Okay. Acquaintance. That does not sound right. That's helpful. So, um, I, my dyslexia kicks in at really bad times. <laughs> um, just good, it's a mess when, when, when you deal with stats and words all yes. the time, Amen. Amen. um, so we got those flipped around. So let me, let me actually go over some, some actually really practical things that I think would be useful for parents. Um, one that I really encourage is making sure that parents talk about um, proper names for body parts, private parts. Okay. Uh, that's going. That's actually really important. One is, and this this kind of fits with like a doctrine of creation, like God made your body. Yes. Uh, and it's good. Mm-hmm. And when He made humans, they were good. Good. He really mm-hmm. likes humans. He mm-hmm. likes bodies. He likes matter. Yep. And souls and bodies together is kind of His specialty. Amen. Uh, and so what that means is the body has its own integrity as as part of being human in the image of God and and so when you when ch- kids aren't freaked out by proper names of body parts adults are cuz i think it's weird that their 4 year old talks about you know penis and vagina and they just people go nuts and right. they're embarrassed for kids it's like oh i'm learning stuff yep. and they're learning something that like they know makes the parents uncomfortable we we ask <laughs> we, one of our pages in our kids book god made all of me is the body part page and it actually uses the proper names for body parts yeah And I just, I knew what the answer was, but I said, Hey, I'm curious, you know, and that, that thing has, I mean, it's just encouraging knowing, I think that it's, it's, it's knocking on the door of a hundred thousand and the idea that there's a hundred thousand families at least that have had this conversation, hopefully is unbelievably encouraging uh, to prevent. But I asked like, Hey, if you have the book, what's, what's your kid's favorite page? That page was like 95% kids. The kids love it. You're doing them a service. They feel like they're getting the inside scoop. Right. But it also, right. when you call when you call a private part a nickname, you're doing two things. It's communicating this is a shameful thing. It's this part's you, you, this part's something we can't really speak about. We right. kind of have to whisper. And so it actually creates shame about something for which they should have no shame. And so that's more of the parents' issues. And the other thing is that you're playing into the perpetrator's game because they will turn the private part into a plaything. they don't want it to be a proper name that's unnerving they want it to be you know a lily or a pea shooter and so it turns it into a game that's what they're going to do is like hey um, you know you know a cupcake or a lily or a pea shooter is what a perpetrator is going to do and you're actually laying the groundwork for perpetrators actions and then if you know if a child ever has to disclose something uh, there have been problems with a child not knowing what has been done or what to call and be like. Oh, he touched he touched down there. What was right. down there? Their knee? Right. Is it their thigh? Is it their private part? And when the kid, when the child doesn't have the language, because uh, a parent can't coach the kid through this, and uh, and it, the the whole thing falls apart if the investigator is seen as coaching the kid, and so the child knowing that's that's huge. Um, so proper names for body parts, inviting. Another big thing is inviting your child's communication, Mm -hmm. starting the conversation with parents early and often of, you know, you don't wait until, and this is, this is not a one and done conversation. Hey, we're going to talk about how babies are made. And then that's kind of it. Talk about body, body parts, private parts, um, explaining what a private part is and not, um, and just making that normal. Hey, if you ever have questions, let me know. There's not dumb questions and, and making it like it's the drip method. Yes. Of, and so blaze that path. Just like when you think about sidewalks, I was, I was uh, at a hotel with my family and I was looking down from the hotel and saw like the parking area and you can see where the sidewalks are, are where, you know, the developers laid sidewalks. And then you can see where people decided they're going to blaze their own little pathway in the, in the grass. Where, there needs to be a sidewalk there because people are just walking across the grass instead of around the grass. Well, they just made their line of communication or they just made their pathway. Parents need to be thinking like that, like walk that walk on that grass so much that you wear a pathway that's normal for your child to be like, Oh, Hey, you know how we talk about that. Come right to you, make it a clear pathway. Don't require that they grab a machete and hack through the overgrowth right. and get to a pathway with you. Another big one is talking about touch. Uh, you don't want to use the language of good touch or bad touch, even though that's an easier language because some inappropriate touch might physiologically feel good. Now, some of, most of it does not. Sometimes it can. And so you've had some children who've been abused and they're like, but it felt good. Right. It, so it wasn't, was it bad touch? Um, and so it shuts them down. It also makes them feel like they did something bad. So it actually creates more shame, which creates more silence. So inappropriate, but talking about touches, you no, know, no one's allowed to touch you in your private parts. You're allowed to say no. Um, you, you know, private parts are for you. And only when someone is helping you take a bath, who's supposed to like mom or dad, yep. and, or in a doctor's office with mom and dad there, you give the boundaries on that. Yep. Um, uh, So those are, I have some more, but I don't, again, I don't, I don't, With for sake of time, but there's a few other kind of obvious doozy ones, but do you want some more or do you want me to to stop there?
0: Well, I got a bunch of other stuff I want to get into with you, um, Justin. And as we're talking, more questions are are rolling. So maybe, let
1: let me, let me give you two more then just to kind of put it in there. So parents can think about it and then we can move on. And if they get rid of the word secret, Uh, a perpetrator uses the word secret as a category to trick children. Like this is our secret. You surprise, you surprise, not secret. Um, And don't ask children to maintain your emotions. If you're sad, you don't need a hug. If you're glad you don't need a kiss, keep your emotions and physical affection healthy. Now I'm always like, I'm thrilled. Oh, Hey, can I give you a hug? Like let them say yes, but I'm like I remember one time I came home from something happened in the day and I was bummed out and I was like, uh, my daughter was younger said, "Daddy, you look sad." I'm like, I am sad. Can I have a hug? And my daughter, my wife, <laughs> stuck her head around the corner. I was like, no, <laughs> like, because that's what a perpetrator is going to do. I'm sad. Will you come sit on my lap? I need a hug. Give oh, me a kiss I see right here. as like a manipulation
0: that's- tactic.
1: So don't you want to get them comfortable not maintaining an adult's emotions? And then the last one is helping them identify who you trust. Like, Hey, if mommy and daddy aren't here, who do you trust? You know, I trust miss so-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, a police officer, another mom, if you get lost or a mom with other kids might be safe. And so helping them identify who they trust, who they can trust and help them see their world in a fruitful way. And the goal of this is not to instill fear into the child in the sense of paralyzing fear, right. but discernment, wisdom, uh, and There's ways of, I mean, our kid's book is vibrant and colorful. There's ways of having this conversation that is, doesn't freak them out. Right. Um, And that's the key is good communication with the parents from the parents.
0: That's super helpful, Justin. Thank you so much. Yeah. I think of, for me, you know, as a parent and I've got, you know, older kids now, but man, like all of this stuff is so good. And there's certain personality types that I think just fix can fixate on this and kind of, you know, being a parent just in and of itself is fear inducing, right? <laughs> but do do you have other like thoughts or conversations you've had with parents so that they're not living in the paranoia? Um, like helping helping people be freed from the paranoia. Um, because I, I feel like there's certain personality types that could just really struggle with that, you know, is that, is that something that you've seen or had to help people walk through?
1: Most, not a lot. Most of the things I hear from other parents. Now, again, you're talking to a survivor um, and a parent of girls who, and who are right in this age, And something, someone who studies this stuff. So my, what I think, I don't know, like when you describe paranoia, I don't know what that looks like. Most of the stuff that I've seen, I see as wisdom. Sure. What I do see sometimes is usually someone who is a survivor of sexual abuse, who knows they, they, they know their story was one of silence. No one believed them and the effects the darkness that the depression they're in or were in the physical, emotional, and spiritual trauma they experienced. And when they have kids that can activate a lot of those fears where they won't let their child out of their sight.
0: Right. That's more what out. I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. Just like every single person is a potential perpetrator and
1: I can't hardly let the
0: kid out of the house.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I I think pastorally, I'd want them to explore what is motivating that. Mm -hmm. And frequently it's like, Hey, you're, you know, I think you might be reprocessing, which is normal. This is how trauma works. When you experience trauma, trauma memory and other, and regular memory are not the same.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Trauma memory is you're not viewing the experience from a distance. Like you're watching a movie, you are reliving it. It's, it's basically right in your face and it's all right. It's like being in a virtual reality in the sense that you can't get out of this. Um, and so when they start thinking about their child going, like going off without them, the biological, emotional, spiritual uh, effects of trauma, I mean, sexual assault victims, um, and I use victim and survivor interchangeably for very, we can talk about that if you want to. Um, but just, I've been saying survivor and, and I just, I think I use victim for the first time there. So I don't want to uh, jolt anybody um, is uh, the, the uh, is sexual assault survivors are second after war vets to experience PTSD. And so many people, what they're if, if they're exhibiting paranoia, it's likely because of the trauma they're experiencing and re-experiencing and it's coming out as paranoia because they feel out of control and they want to control and they want to protect. And so, um, I think there is a, it's rough. I mean, sending your, you know, we homeschooled our children up until like first, second, no, first and first and third grade. And when they kind of go off and you're like, okay, you're in another world where other, other adults are responsible. Right. And then we know that many re- adults aren't responsible. Right. Um, just basic stuff. Like I'm shocked regularly at how just stupid organizations and people can be. Sure. Um, and so it, it, it's unnerving. Yep. And now, now I don't want to you. so I think there's some trauma. So pastorally there's some trauma going in. Um, but also what's helpful for me is realizing that God cares about my children even more than I do. Um, and so knowing God's character, his providence, his sovereignty and his creative sovereignty, um, that doesn't make me think, well, what's going to happen is going to happen. If they're going to get abused, they're going to get abused. It actually is the opposite. It makes me think like, okay, these are, um, these are God's children. Um, They're his, they're adopted into his family. Um, they're, they have received the signs of, you know, baptism and they take Lord's supper. Like they're every, every indication we have is that they're God's kids Mm -hmm. and not, not just his creation, but in his adopted family. Um, they're his. Now of course he has let horrible things happen to his children and his people. Um, but that's not his pattern. And, so that gives, that gives me hope. Like I, I'm not powerful enough to stop this everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to have to do everything I can. And I also know, so trauma is there. God's care and sovereignty is helpful. But I've also had a lot of conversations with my children. I do know that some of the best things to protect them is them saying, don't touch me there. You're not allowed to do that. I'm going to ask for help like they're they're, they're vigilant and I, and
0: I would imagine most perpetrators if that that baseline protection is in place for your kids most perpetrators probably aren't going to persist past that they're grooming people and looking for candidates would, would that be correct and so if a kid
1: nailed it yeah exactly i mean that's it you nailed it they are looking now that's that's the creepy thing right this is the really creepy thing is that they are like um an animal stalking their prey. I mean, they 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 are calculated, they will groom for months. Right. This is not like, oh, I'm attracted to that child. I'm going to act on it. It's an impulse of lust or something. It is it's calculated. Yeah. It's stalking. Yeah. And they're looking for a child who doesn't have attentive parents who may look or feel forgotten, whose family is going through some trauma. Um, they might not have both parents involved and especially if the child has some behavioral issues, cause that child likely won't be believed. Right. And so they're, 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 they're so calculated. It's, so because the perpetrator is so calculated, the parents need to be equally as calculated. So that's helpful. I'm, that's that's helpful. why I'm not, I'm not trying to make the paranoia go away because I'm going, they're like a lion stalking your prey. They're like Satan stalking us who roams around. Right. Seeking right. And devour. Right. Now, what I don't want to do is celebrate, Hey, my kid's safe, but the other kid, but that's what happens is my kids go, no, I'm not going to give you a hug. Right? right. Uh, no, I'm not, no, I'm not sitting on your lap. Like my kids know, and my I mean to the point where in school, um, uh, one of my daughters years ago, um, a boy threw a ball at her, I think, and hit her in her butt. And she just she just yelled out don't touch my butt like, got <laughs> kind of, it I was like yeah I like that I yeah. like that as a position yep. I was like now I, I don't think he touched your butt I think he threw the ball now now if he's throwing the ball at your butt you know but I you know fr- from all accounts it was he was just throwing it sure the other kid didn't catch it but I yep. like the fact that there was an intensity to her response yeah so for numerous reasons I uh, you know I, I get it like we're weren't their other parents have different standards with all other kids right around the neighborhood and I get that like I remember the good old days yeah I me like, too I, I, I but some of those good old days stuff like some of the things I did I'm like oh no I remember hearing the stories about creepy stuff advanced right. creepy people I feel like I kind of dodged a bullet some of the things that I that I did yeah uh,
0: that's two things number one that that's really really helpful like what i'm kind of hearing you say is maybe 90 percent of it is train your kids no one's allowed other than doctor in the right context and mom and dad in the right context is allowed to touch your body in in private areas um and if your kids just know that they're probably not going to be a candidate for grooming and they're willing to communicate it um is that accurate you think
1: yeah a lot of it but that is accurate keeping in mind that 90% are someone that is already in the child's life. Right. That's the key yep. is family members, brothers, sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, um, and someone that they trust teacher coach, Sunday school teacher, um, neighborhood person, an acquaintance to the family. So it's like, that's what's confusing yep. is helping children realize that tricky you can't see who the tricky people are sometimes there's tricky people in our life and so i've I've, to do that kind of get them thinking about that i've told i tell my children stories of being betrayed by someone i trust which we've all experienced we've all had someone we thought was a friend who went behind our back or lied about us and we may have reconciled with that person but telling them that story and going i was really surprised when so and so said this to me to my face and then behind my back undermined me or lied about me or gossiped about me. And that's really confusing to have that sense of trust violated. And so giving them categories so that way, because what's going to, I mean, until you're in the moment and as a child processing, like, Oh, this is someone who might, this is my mom and dad's friend that we see at church. He must be safe. And then when he does something, they assume that they must have interpreted it wrong. Surely he's not a bad person. Right. So maybe I did something. So they assume they blame themselves and that's, that's what you have to be aware being aware of how tricky they are and how a child will process that is setting them up. So I, I'd, I'd much rather would err on the side of caution than not. But I also have to train my kids to live in the world. And so preparing them, um, like I know that girls between the ages of 16 and 19 are four times more likely than anyone in the average population to be victims of sexual abuse.
0: Wow. That is super sobering to hear. Let me change the question a little bit. I think about like your relationships and do you feel like you are, um, I think I'm trying to like find the magic bullet here and it probably doesn't exist. Um, But like, like in light of the fact that there's so many acquaintances, acquaintances in my life and people that I want to, I do want to believe the best about. Um, At the same time, I have to be vigilant and I do have a doctrine of sin. Do you, I mean, are you, do you feel like you're even on the lookout for people that have a track record of being trustworthy but are you're still like on the lookout like am, am i am i am i watchdogging my friends at all times and is that kind of necessary or i think what i'm getting at is like what are you are you looking for certain things as to like wow that's, that's that is a person that i thought i could trust i think i can trust there's a track record of trust but i'm still watching everything does that make sense what i'm asking like um
1: i, th- I think so is there um, well I can respond to it um, let me let me see if this helps yeah. um, we're we're both ministers mm-hmm. and so we've experienced um, knowing someone being in the room with them and looking them in the eye and asking them you know hey that you know they tell you a story of how they're suffering and you, you might ask hey w- let's talk about your um sub your 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 relationship with various substances you know alcohol no 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 i'm not i'm not i'm not drinking too much and um no are you are are you how what about i mean you live in a pornified culture how's that influence oh no not at all and then you find out that that person has been having an adulterous relationship for nine months yeah and you looked at them You had no reason to doubt them, you trusted them, you gave advice based on trusting them, you looked them in the eye and they deceived you. I've had enough of those conversations with people where I've been surprised and disappointed that, because we all have various selves, I'm not trying to be goofy on this, but we have a public self that everyone sees and we have a private self and we have a secret self that only we see. Yep. And as my friend Chuck DeGroat, who's a, a therapist, says, we also have a hidden self. So you know, we those need to be as unified as possible. Um, but the public self is what you know people know you and me by blogging and podcasting, public stuff. Private stuff is stuff that your wife and children see. Secret stuff is stuff that only you know about what's going on in your hind, in in your mind, in your heart, and in your actions. Um, and we've seen people that have had a big discrepancy between the secret self and the private. public self.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: And I know that. And, and I've had, I have close friends who, to whom I confess my sin and they confess theirs. And I, so I I know who I think I trust and I have good reason to trust them. Um, There are people in our life that I'm like, yeah, take my daughter's fishing, right? Like go for it. Um, I would love for my daughters to come over and hang out with your daughters while you're there. Like, I trust you. Yep. Uh, And so I, I'm not going around now when my daughters come home from an excursion like that, where they're not under our immediate care and right there regularly. And it's a normal conversation. Like, Hey, did you feel safe about everything?
0: Mm, That's good.
1: Yeah, I did. So like when, when they were younger and our daughters had, well, they still get babysitters, but they're usually family members now. But when they have babysitters, like we, we go on dates. My wife and I go on dates and we get a babysitter. And after we, we told the babysitter, Hey, we're going to ask them just so you know, if they feel safe, there's no reason why you ever need to be involved with helping them get dressed. They're fine. Uh, give them the boundaries. Then just soon as the babysitter leaves, Hey, did you feel safe with the babysitter? Yep. Yeah, I did. Did she, did she do or say anything that made you feel uncomfortable? No. Or if she did, what was it? What, she took a picture of us where well, she's not supposed to take a picture of you. That's part of the rules. Or gotcha. she, she, you know, she told us about the story she's reading. And it was really scary. Okay. Well, that's a judgment call. Right. <laughs> picture taking no, no judgment call on the story. And so I'm still asking questions, but again, I'm trying to train them up and I'd rather err on the side of safety than, um, you know, not safety. So I think we're threading the needle pretty well. Our children are pretty bold. They're like, they love going off to school. They love being involved in dance. They have meetings with their music teacher, um, you know, that kind of stuff. So they're, they're out and about, um, and they're not walking around with paranoia or even fear, but there's a, their antenna are up. Yep. And that's what I think it is. I think it's don't live in the bubble. Um, and I, I want, and I think we're having different experiences. I think you're experiencing, you, you've referred to paranoia with some things. I'm experiencing the opposite where I wish there was just a little bit more vigilance, I you mean, know? because I'm involved with working with churches who have failed to protect yep. really basic stuff, then cover up their failure because they're embarrassed yep. and then blame the victim yep. where I'm like, if if someone would have advocated for this child, like some church person or some parent would have just not assume the best and so i i get i get because i've seen the paranoia thing um, to me that's in my experience that's a secondary issue to trying to get churches to actually pay attention yeah to
0: that's it. helpful uh,
1: so again i don't know the experience that you're, you're well I,
0: i'm just i think i'm just speaking from my own um tendency to just err on the side of fear and worry
1: mm-hmm. and
0: um and that's probably just something that's that can potentially possess my mind. And uh, I mean like the worst thing in the world I could ever think of is something like this happening to my kids. And so you're just, you know, hyper vigilant as a parent and, but man, what I feel like I'm hearing you say, Justin, just in, in all this is like, you have had such good communication with your kids and it seems like it's just like another example of boundaries, bringing, bringing freedom. Like you describe your kids as having freedom. You know, yeah. like they're, they're engaged in the world with freedom, but you've given them through faithful training, just some really good boundaries. Yes. And that, as I'm trying to summarize all that we've talked about, that's a big theme that's jumping out to me.
1: Well, I, I, I love your summary because that feels in one sentence, like what I was kind of lunging towards. So I think you encapsulated it really helpfully is, is that this, these conversations and, and. I have as much time as you want if we need to talk more. So I don't want you to No, I'm good, man. I'm good. That way, if you want to, you know, we can talk as much as you want and we can, whatever's useful. Thank Um, you, Justin. But but yeah, the, um, because we're, we're right now we're dealing with, you know, COVID stuff, expectations, school year, hopes, dreams, you know, they're just turning 10, just turning 12 in the next month or two. and, and so we're actually, it's, it's fun because a lot of the work we did early on, on some of these, you know, issues of boundaries, like the conversation I had yesterday with both of my daughters was like, Hey, communicating emotions. And so we're at the level now where I'm saying, your emotions really matter. I don't want you to feel like you have a feeling. You, you don't want to articulate it. Like that's what I want to hear. Yep. Like I'm all, I'm captain emotion. Like if I'm frustrated, you know it. If I'm sad, I cry. Yep. Uh, like, like I'm, I'm the most, um, out there with the emotions and my daughters are just a little bit more guarded because I want, I, because maybe I haven't made them feel comfortable. And I was like, I want to hear them. Like if you're, ang- and, and they know that they can confront us if they think we've sinned. Um, and so I think the key for parenting is apologizing, repenting early and often and modeling what that looks like. Amen. So I've, I've, I've been somewhere where my kids my daughters have uh, had to apologize to someone and the parents of the offended child, one of my daughters told the other kid just to shut up. And I was like, where did that come from? Like, mm-hmm. and the child was like, you, you can't, that's a bad word. You can't say that to me. And my daughter realized it. And she was like, Oh, and then I was like, what do you do, honey? And her apology was like, good grief. Like I wish I could apologize to my wife the way my daughter did to this kid. Damn like just, man. here we go. Yep. And so I checked in with the parents. like, Hey man, what, what's going on? Is everything okay? To, if you want to have another conversation with you there and m- me and my daughter there, like we can do that. And he goes, no, he's like, no, my kid said that was the best apology he's gotten in years. Like it was, it struck him. I thought, cool. So I think the more engaged parents are with their children, on an emotional, spiritual, talking about life, like what are we praying for? Yep. I think that is what helps cause because it's there's once the children have a foundation of stability and security, they're like this is safe. All right, I know I can draw a circle if the family is safe, and not I don't assume that that's the case. There are some horrible parents out there and other things happening, but if if this is safe, then they can start exploring other relationships with teacher and friends and building on security. And they always know they kind of have a soft place to land and it creates confidence and security and freedom. That's the point you said was the freedom. And that's my children used to be uh, just part of their wiring. Also just partly personality and just developmentally. I mean, children go through phases where they're like clingy. I mean, my kids used to be, uh, you know, when you're the pastor's kid, they always want you to be merry in the Christmas play and other things, and so they were had stage fright. Like they did not like other people. They did not want to be left, and they don't want to be up front anywhere. And now they're like taking acting classes and dancing, and they want the biggest part in the play. I'm looking at them, thinking, "Huh? I mean, I know they have their own personality, but something that my wife and I did caused them to feel freedom to do that." And I'm thinking, "Okay, I think some things we did that we intended to do worked." some things God used way better than we ever would have imagined. Um, but yeah, I think security of boundaries does provide, uh, freedom for our children. And, uh, I think asking their opinion, did you feel safe? Like, I think them having a voice is really helpful. Like, no, I didn't. Um, why we actually, we actually have code words with our kids. If you're, if we're ever in a conversation at church or somewhere else and someone makes you feel unsafe or creepy, you know, what's our phrase. And we, you know, we go over there, one, the phrase got used one time and I was like, what was it? And they said, um, the way he was talking about his kid seemed really, really mean. And if he ever did that, I'd be angry. And yeah. I was like, okay, that's different. You're right. Do you think I should address it? No, 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 no. I was like, okay. yeah." But, uh, that gives, I mean, just that, that's it's the same, I think the same thing with us theologically, the, our security with God, um, causes us to um not always have to put our best foot forward with god and other people but also allows us to be like hey if i am secure with god i have the security to risk some entrepreneurial vision things that might fail And so i think that's i think what you said i I'm, I'm i'm applying with your summary of security bringing freedom i'm like yeah that's actually happens with us and god Like that, that sounds Theologically right—that's that's great fuel for our creative drive and ambition that we might have.
0: Amen, amen. Yeah, one of the things that Kim and I have thought about, especially when our kids were little, is like all of my kids are super touchy. Like they just want to be on you at all times, and even now that they're teenagers, that can sometimes still be the case. You know, but we—you can tell me if you think this is a helpful tactic too. Kim and I intentionally um, give lots of touch to our kids when they're little. Um, but we wanted to make sure they understood the distinction or, you know, this is healthy touch. This is appropriate touch. And there's a distinction between touch with mom and dad and maybe a touch with others or touch with brother, sister touch with others. But like, there's a lot of touching in our family in appropriate ways from the day our kids were born. But our hope was that would help them again, have a A measure by which to go oh this is real good touch this is a foreign touch i've never felt touched this
1: way is that you think a a helpful way to think about it too i love it i I love when parents no expert said anything you just have this impulse of the wisdom of that is through the roof i love that because it's it gives them categories now i'm also envious because i i am i am I love touch. Like I'm a hugger mm-hmm. and I grew up in a very touchy family and my daughters and my wife are not like, I'm, I'm the one crying all the time. And I'm always <laughs> wanting a hug. <laughs> Just look at me and you know, they're like, it's brief, Dad. What's wrong with you? pull it together. So, like I'm hearing, I'm like, Oh, your kids are all touchy. How did you make that happen? <laughs> and, uh, but, but yeah, I love that because I think the wisdom of that is, um, and especially if you use the language of healthy touch, I mean, mm-hmm. not just appropriate yeah. appropriate, inappropriate is so like lowest common denominator. Sure. Healthy. Yeah. Versus unhealthy is probably better language that I need to start using. So I'm, I'm going to quote you. I love the <laughs> language because it, it gives a model. It's a model for, Hey, this, how does healthy touch make you feel? It doesn't make you feel threatened, right. scared, right. awkward, um, it doesn't hurt physically. It doesn't hurt spiritually. It doesn't hurt emotionally. It fills my bucket. Yeah, it's positive. Uh, it's, it's, not it's, it's not negative. It's not even
0: neutral. It's positive. Like this
1: might actually help me. Yeah. yeah. When our girls were younger, um, I would play a game with them. And I I, I encourage uh, families to do this. Um, we would just tell them, they, they would learn sign language like I think is that no more
0: yeah no more is the I hands think, that done, go no all, all done like, all done yeah, is yeah the hands, the, the hands that wave done. the jazz hands
1: uh, yeah we would use that yeah <laughs> the jazz hands and so uh we would we would do that just so we could communicate but uh I would play a game where I would tickle the girls mm-hmm. and they knew the game was see how long I can tickle you and then when you're done say like done no more yeah and then I have to stop yep. have to stop and yep. if I don't I'm breaking the rules, and I did bad. Yeah, and so I'd be like, it take a little stop." So and so, I I just I, I just wanted to get their instincts trained to expect that when they say no or stop, like that happens. Yeah, and it's still today. Like one of my they're, again, they're older. One of them will be like, "Hey, come here and like, please don't touch me." No, come here. And like, do not touch me. Like, there's an intensity to. I expect when I say something about my body and touch that it's listened to, and so it normalizes their boundaries and so I think the 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 other side of that and the positive side of that is embodying and giving like because the body keeps the score negatively and positively right so your children have had years I mean I'm just thinking of the foundation you like your children have years of healthy interaction and touch which has been normalized so if any type of inappropriate touch is like whoa 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 and it, it that it will trigger emotions of this doesn't fit regardless if it's abusive touch if it's um presumptuous touch yep i mean there's different types but i think i think i think you set them up really well and i think that's a gift i think other parents need to follow that model
0: i appreciate that hey let's switch gears to um to like the adult experience and i'm thinking about um just our small group leaders And so we're trying to have a culture at our church where, um, we don't expect our leaders to be professionals, but we just want to train them to walk with people, um, to the best of their ability. And if they need help, they'll reach out to leadership for help. Mm. But I'm imagining a scenario that tragically is something we hear about a lot, um, where someone confesses what happened to them and It may be recent. It may be like in your case, uh, something a long time ago in childhood. How do you train lay leaders at a basic level, like in a small group level, to engage with those that are um, suffering from sexual assault, sexual abuse?
1: Great question. Um, Well, I love it because uh, I think one of the most powerful things is a community that will listen to them and help them also process it. So they're not alone and isolated. So I think um, having a small group setting is a great way to care pastorally for people. Um, One of the most, so I, I one of the most enjoyable things that I do is come to churches and work with, the small group leaders or the entire church and say, Hey, what does it look like to respond well to these stories that you hear? One is if someone's telling you that, that's amazing. The fact that they have told you or anyone else, um, uh, means that there's a, that's a compliment that they, that you've cared for them in a way that they trust you to share that experience. Mm. Uh, and the other thing is just to encourage small group leaders, They've asked survivors, what's the most helpful thing that people have done to support you? And they they give them a list of like 10, 15 different things that can be done. Far and away, number one on the list is being listened to and
2: believed.
1: So what you said is you don't expect them to be experts. Well, in my denomination, we don't expect our clergy to be experts either. That's why we have a rule. You can't meet with someone more than three times about an issue before you have to refer them to a specialist, a
2: therapist, a counselor.
1: And so I love the freedom you're giving the leaders by saying, Hey, you're, you're, you're facilitating and hosting a conversation. You're leading the group of a conversation with peers. You're the first among equals as a small group leader. Right. Uh, and so we're not expecting, so I think the freedom of that, but the other piece of freedom is, Hey, listening and believing them is an enormous gift. I love, I, there was a church that I went to go speak to last year and there was like 400 people from the church And they invited a few other people from other churches, but it was mostly church people. And I said, "You have no idea how powerful listening and believing is." I was like, "Now all the survivors, raise your hand if you think that's true." And when you see a flood of hands go up and being, that's what I'm like. That's what they all need. That's what we need is being listened to and believed. Why do you think that
0: is, Justin? Do you think it's is the default setting that no one will believe me, or yes, okay,
1: the power of shame is silencing. Um, I feel dirty. I feel like I'm damaged goods. I, um, so maybe I did something and you, be, you're bestowed an identity and then you start believing that lie. And then you think, um, they probably wouldn't believe me. Why should they believe me? Hmm. I don't want to say anything. So they assume that they're going to be asked questions and they, they're going to have it theologically edited away. Um, well, you know, everything. So the platitudes like shallow theology kind of platitude, surface empathy, those types of things is what they're expecting because, um, and so they're not used to people walking alongside with their injury and pain. And so I think after listening and believing, having, um, and the good news is is people don't have to buy our book on this. I'm not, I'm not trying to hawk books. Um, but we, in the appendix, we have things to say and not say. Um, but we put that in there because people said we need, you know, boilerplate responses and non-responses like, no, um, you know God. God must want something good out of this, or else He wouldn't have let it happen. Like theologically, editing the problem of evil is not helpful. Right. Um, minimizing it, like well, at least blank didn't happen. Um, but like, what are some things you can say? Like, that's a normal response. God is angry at what happened to you. God's compassionate for what happened to you. Um, so there's some like first. So listening and believing, give him a vision. Yep. Like you are more powerful than you think. Listening and believing is powerful. Um, there's some things to say and not say. And then how do you connect the dots on what 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 did Jesus what did the Trinity, what's the Trinity's response to evil? Yes. Was to make a plan for redemption. And the Father planned it, the Son accomplished it, and the Holy Spirit applies the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. But if Jesus Christ in his ministry, as Calvin said, the moment he incarnated, redemption began. So the work of Christ is meaningful for sin. And what people have experienced is the effect of sin against them. Not just, you know, sin is not just our guilt, but the effects of sin. And so there's works of Christ that relate to the effects of being sinned against. So trying to help them think through how to apply the promise of the gospel of the kingdom to the effects of being sinned against in certain ways. Minimizing identity, shame, guilt, anger, despair. Um, I mean, well, what did Jesus do and how does that fit? And that's what the whole book, Rid of My Grace is about, is the heartbeat of that is you experience minimizing by yourself and by other people. What's God's response to minimizing? Amen. You, you have a distorted view of who you are. Your identity is distorted. Who are you in Christ? Um, what about shame? And so, we go through in helping the more that the community is is learning how does the incarnation apply to my sin and my being sinned against right. how does the ascension apply to my sin and my being sinned against how does the resurrection apply to my sin and being sinned against how does the return yep. of christ Apply And so So, helping people apply the work of Christ. Yeah, let's
0: get super practical, Justin, because a lot of times I can imagine myself hearing those categories that you laid out that are uh, intensely theological and maybe a lay person's like, I don't know how the resurrection applies. So let's just walk us through like a case scenario where you like give us actual verses or actual like, sure, maybe maybe just tease that out with more specificity to help someone really do what you're asking
1: i love it i love this question so let's do distorted identity yeah um otherwise known as low (laughs) self-esteem but i like distorted self-identity which is i'm damaged goods i'm evil and i'm bad because i do bad things because a perpetrator is going to say "Now, i believe that we are i believe in original sin all of that so we are evil in our behaviors in in our nature sinful but because what's happened to me, the perpetrator has said to them, bad things happen to dirty, things happen to dirty girls and boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wanted this. And so they start believing I'm worthless. I'm repulsive. I'm dirty. I'm defiled. I'm vulnerable. I'm unwanted. I should be discarded. Like that's a common identity of a survivor of abuse. Well, um, because of the work of Christ, his and for me so shame we'll, we'll get to shame in a second that's identity in christ um because of his active righteousness you know his his passive righteousness was his death on the cross to take the penalty of sin and the curse of sin his active righteousness when he was actively fulfilling the law he he loved god with all his heart mind soul and strength he loved his neighbor as himself he fulfilled the law he was sinless and fulfilled the law. He lived a perfect God. life. Yep. Lived a perfect life. Because of that, we are called by Paul and well, by God, but in Paul's letters and Peter and James and the gospels, we are called what Jesus actually was. We are called perfect. The word perfect is applied to us because we're in Christ. Right. Pure, righteous,
0: blameless, holy,
1: blameless, yeah. without spot. Like there's amazing terms. Like if you do self-esteem therapy and you're like, I feel unlovely, I'm smart. Like the things we come up with pale in comparison to what the Bible calls us if we're in Christ. It's like, I'm I'm beautiful and I'm smart. No, you're perfect and righteous and blameless and holy. And so that just that kind of stuff. Let me give you one on shame. The biblical images of shame are naked, defiled, and outside the camp. Those mm-hmm. three things. So each one's a biblical image, naked, defiled, and outside the camp. Well, look at Jesus' crucifixion. Amen. And He took the shame where he was stripped naked. Yep. He robes us in his righteousness. He had his own bodily fluids all over him, his blood, urine, and probably feces. Yep. And spit. He yep. was spit on. He had garbage thrown at him. He was defiled so we would be made clean and he was crucified outside the camp so we would be adopted into the family of God. Preach that. And so, so though, I mean, I'm, it's, and I'm not, I'm saying this in a not, I'm not condescending. It's that easy, which is, but the learning how to make those pathways, I'm not saying it is like, you should all know how to do this, but like, it's, it's not, I'm not a therapist. I am a theologian. I'm a minister, but this is stuff that is like, yeah, that, let me give you another one that I really Can, can I just stop you there, Justin, real yeah, quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Because sure. I think it... Uh, you're you're to, in charge. <laughs> no, no, no. Just like uh, helping put language on this that we kind of use at our church. You're talking about um, identity mm-hmm. and a survivor may have an identity that they've self-identified based on what happens to them. And we want to lovingly come alongside them and say, because of the promises of God, because of the truths of scripture, because of the gospel... God has identified you differently. So let's yep. like open up to Ephesians one and see how God talks about us. So one of the things that we we say is um, you are who God says you are. And yeah. in some sense, I would say this very gently in this context, in a different context, I might say it with more force, but you don't even have the right to identify yourself. Only God has the right to identify you in the yep. same way that a, a, a newborn baby doesn't have the right to name themselves like the parent names them yeah and and so man let's look at who god says that you are um and we always go to Ephesians 1 that's like the flagship identity chapter um
1: i i i couldn't think of a better place to start yeah, that's, that's but, where i go too
0: <laughs> yeah but like i think trying to help people see okay there's categories here when when someone says they're feeling so much shame um that's an identity statement. Like I am dirty. I am unlovable. And so helping people see the Bible has something different to say. And so then it's an issue of showing, having our our small group leaders or anybody know, okay, so do I know what God says about me and where would I find that? And uh, I think that's one of the most helpful things to train our leaders in is what does God say about me? You know, yes. who, who am yeah. I, who I am, who God says I am. Okay. Do I know what he actually says, who I am, <laughs> who says that I am or whatever. So
1: Dude, that's, that's, that's for everybody Amen. is the identity question. So I think you can get a lot of, a lot of mileage, yeah. mileage <laughs> a lot of mileage out of that one. That's exactly where it goes. To Ephesians. Yeah. What I've said to people pretty clearly is you're not who the perpetrator said you are right? because their words and their actions communicated an identity to you. So we're not gonna give them the power of doing that. Right? Satan wants you to hate yourself so you're not what Satan says you are because he's he's accusing you and he is not your advocate and he has his own work that he's trying to do to you. You're also, thank God, not what you feel that you are. And then I'd give him the caveat and just say, hey, it makes sense why you would feel like that. Yes. Get it. But let's reinterpret you according So what we don't need is just to change your view of yourself. You don't need to be in an echo chamber of giving yourself positive self affirmations because the research on positive self affirmations is actually fascinating. Mm -hmm. When people who have low self-esteem, the worst thing you can do is give them positive self affirmation therapy, which is just say the opposite of what you think you are. Well, what happens is they go, I'm ugly. No, I'm not. I'm beautiful. I'm worthless. No, I'm valuable is they realize that they're in their own echo chamber and that they're the only person saying that to them. And so it actually causes someone with low self-esteem to spike for a moment and then plummet deeper into their own despair and shame. Mm. And so self-help and self-healing actually doesn't help because they realize, oh, all it does is accentuate. Oh, guess what? I'm the only one that says this about myself. So what's more powerful is a voice, which you're getting to, a voice from the outside. Yes. Who who has your creator and redeemer said that you are based on his initiating work where he took all of the costs? Nothing to to do with your
0: performance, right?
1: What does he think about you? And let that have, you know, go ahead. we want you to kind of believe. We want you to have a sense of who you are. Let him have, it's an authority dialogue. You bring who you think you are. Am I worthless goods? No, you're valuable more than many sparrows. Amen. Am, am I, am I damaged goods? No, I heal what happens What the I heal the devastation of destruction. Someone plundered me. Zechariah two, eight, someone, someone, the language of Zachariah two is whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. The language there is actually plundered. Yeah. Someone plundered me. How do you feel about that? It's like they did it to me. Like, so we need to have that authority dialogue where we bring our i our our identities that aren't really biblical and go, how do you respond to that, God? And let Him undermine them slowly because He's way more patient and getting traction for us to actually believe. I still need to hear this kind of stuff. I had, Amen. I had, someone, Amen. I had someone last week. I called him. I was like, hey, man, I'm thinking about some big questions in life, and blah blah. And he goes, hey, I'm just going to state the obvious. I mean, you're you know, you're a pastor. I'm not. You realize that you're a child of God. You seem you seem worried that God's going to be disappointed in a decision that I don't think you could disappoint him, regardless if you make choice A or B. Amen. Well, he nailed it. Like like I'm a minister who has a PhD in theology. I teach at seminaries. And I needed this guy who was really humbly was like, Hey man, I know you know this, but I'm picking up on that. You don't think you're standing with God is what it, it really is. You're a child of God. Enjoy that. Like he's not annoyed. Like what Tim Keller says all the time. No one walks into the King's room at two o'clock in the morning, demanding water, unless you're his kid. Like,
0: <laughs> Amen. <laughs> like, Amen.
1: I needed, I need that. You need that. And so, I mean, there's mileage in there so much yeah. that you know I'm choked up thinking about one sentence from a week ago. I mean yeah. that's how powerful this stuff is. Yes,
0: yes, sir. That's so good. And so you know I think maybe the most helpful thing our leaders can have is to know what the Bible says. Yeah. You know and yeah. help and I, I mean obviously it's listening, compassion. It's not. I'm, I'm just regurgitating what I heard you say. It's not um, simplistic answers that minimize people's emotions. Um, all of that assumed, then if it's time, you know, we can, we can rush to the quote answers too quick without listening and being compassionate. At some point we do have to get to what God says. Right. Um, we want to do that in a way that's humble and gentle, but like, yeah, if, if, if I have your permission, can I show you what God says about you? Can I, can I remind yeah. you of that? You know, yeah. that's so helpful. Um, so helpful, Justin. Yeah. It's ministering to me right now because I'm in this, I'm the same boat as you or it's like. Everyone thinks I'm a professional Christian. It's like, no, I'm a mess half the time, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, with- yeah. Uh, so let me ask you a question in reference to our leaders again. Um, and tragically, we all know the stories of sexual abuse scandals uh, that Yeah. And, and I don't have any personal experience with that in terms of my sphere of relationships. Like I have a lot of friends that are pastors. I only know these stories from headlines that that I read, but, um, we, as far as I know, have not had anything like that happen in our 10 years of being a church here in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and I pray all the time that God that we would be spared from anything like that happening in our youth ministry or at any level of our church. But tell me as a pastor and elder, what, like, let's say something like that does happen. How do we screw it up as leaders and how do we not screw it up as leaders? If we're forced into a situation where we have to deal with like, God forbid a Sunday school teacher had, um, had an inappropriate contact with a, with a six year old or some, you know, whatever. Um, where where do church leaders get this screwed up where it turns into a scandal and how do they prevent that from happening?
1: Yeah. Um, going back, part of my answer is going to be connected to the previous question about small group leaders. Yep. Um, there's a little mini book that Boz Chavidjan and I wrote called, Caring for Survivors of Sexual Abuse. It's a, it is literally a mini book. It's like 4,000, 5,000 pages. You mean it's words. Really, uh, yeah, <laughs> not pages. Words. words, <laughs> words. <laughs> it's uh, with New Growth Press. And we go through both. for like So uh, surface empathy, like giving words but not following up, platitudes, bad theology, you know, God wants you to forgive, running to Matthew 18, like, well, you know, we got to forgive in Matthew 18, let's do this. Um, There's a way of responding that is silencing, not fruitful. And then there's responding with compassion. Um, The big thing is um, the way to not mess it up is to don't investigate report. Um, Three words, don't investigate or ones, you know, uh, know, do not investigate report. Um, When churches try to do their own internal investigation, and try to keep the church, keep the keep the authorities out of it, mm-hmm. um, is a major way um, to not be transparent. Creates a bigger mess already. Um, to assume the best about the person who is alleged to do something, um, the good old boy club is alive and well. Organizations default to defending the organization as opposed to the individual um, by not having policies and procedures. Okay. So churches need to have um, policies for being involved in ministries in the church, background checks, and they need to have policies and procedures on how the church is going to respond to allegations and claims of misuse or or of abuse, misuse of authority. Um, And so having those in place is absolutely necessary. Um, And then following those, which is too many times pastors go, Oh, I'll go talk to them. I got it. And they want the problem to go away. So they kind of minimize it. They keep it quiet. It's going to come out. And so assuming that they, it can be maintained, even if you're handling it well, but not being transparent, doesn't go off very well. You will make parents furious if, and you will lose trust and credibility if they find out months later exactly. that exactly. you did not respond strongly. Yep. And so honestly, I recommend that most places contact the denominational authority if there is a denomination very quickly, immediately, um, contact an expert in the field to go, Hey, how do we handle this? Well, um, and to contact the authorities on any instance of abuse and then, um, uh, figure out how you're going to communicate to the church, different size churches, different denominations are different. You know, if you're Presbyterian, you have a Presbytery. If you are kind of a Anglican, you're going to have a Bishop and a diocese Lutheran. You're going to have a Synod. There's different ways. Uh, But, but the worst way is to not be transparent, to try to keep it in house, um, to assume the best about the other person um, and to, um, I've just seen it happen so many times.
0: So, uh a young dad pulls me aside and says my six-year-old says that the sunday school teacher touched her inappropriately what do i do right in that moment
1: so who's the scene do you have, uh i'd be talking to the senior pastor the that, elders, would, that as well as in,
0: in that language i would be the lead pastor but we are we're, we're, we're elder led so like we don't really have a senior pastor but um So I've got elders.
1: What I would do is I would uh, talk to the parent and say, okay, um, do you, can you contact the authorities? Have the child, um, have contact the child protective services, contact the police, let them come take a report from your child. Okay. Um, and we'll put that person on immediate leave. And, and that's the first thing I would be doing is go like, I'm not going to investigate. And, and that's exactly how this happens. Worst case scenario is it's actually true and it doesn't get dealt with what they, what the perpetrator wants is the pastor to come and be like, Hey, you know, how many times do we have awkward conversations like that? We're not trained in doing that. Right. Most perpetrators have gotten away with this dozens of times in their life. They've been, they've already been questioned by police and curious parents and neighbors and other family members they are accustomed to lying. And so we walk in and go, Hey, so-and-so, um, can't say much about this, but a parent said that you, you know, touched their child. You don't even want to say if it's a boy or a girl, right? Uh, inappropriately, and they go, this is what they're going to say. If, if they're guilty, no, why do you think I give my time away right. here from the church? And that we had 10 other kids in the Sunday school class, I'm like, come on. Right. Like, that's ridiculous. Right. Well, guess, right. guess what? Guess what? 50% of child uh, known child offenders perpetrate with other people in the room. Yeah. Yeah. It's common yep. because it's an easy cover. Like they get away with it. So y- you have to assume the worst without, and then if that person, I I've, I've had that happen. I've had this story happen where the child said, I don't like that teacher. I don't like going to the bathroom. He's mean. And the parents responded, talked to the pastors, the pastors called me. Asked, what do we do? I was like, put them on leave. Get the police do it, police investigated said what happened. The person's response, he was not found guilty. The child then explained what the, but the child had to process it. Yeah. Like the child was taken seriously. There's no shame. And, uh, for various reasons that the person apparently didn't do anything wrong. Um, didn't like his tone of voice. And didn't like being in the bathroom because of a whole different situation with a kid locking the door. Sure. And the person responded with, if that child doesn't feel safe, he was really humble and said, I, I love the fact that my church responded this way. My grandkids go here. I love our response. Don't ever apologize for doing that and make being extra safe that our kids are safe.
0: Wow. I, that's uh, beautiful. It,
1: but that, that's what a good hearted servant will do the the other person they play the victim how dare you act they they presume on themselves how dare you even threaten it and you can see very and you've done church discipline cases right that you've gone to someone you're like hey man the way you're the way you are interacting with your wife is definitely sinful and it's looking abusive right and they go oh well you let me tell you what she's really like and you're like whoa like the true self comes out right versus the one who goes, I am powerless. I've been drinking way too much. It's not an excuse, but I'm under pressure and I feel like a failure and I'm self-medicating and it's actually worse than that. I've I've actually been doing really shady stuff with money and you start seeing that looks more like the difference between, um, Godly repentance and worldly sorrow is, is key. But that we're we're off. Tonight. No, but
0: you're saying uh, <laughs> I, I, no. It's good. It's good. But like, uh, let me summarize. Like the reason why pastors shouldn't jump to investigate first necessarily is because um, I have no training in investigating these type of scenarios. But someone who's a professional predator, they have a ton of experience convincing people that they're innocent. So there's yes. a there's a there's a miss. Um, there's a, a discrepancy in experience and expertise
1: there sure is there is a, the skill sets are not fair in that conversation right that's you nailed it you nailed it so and so and we we also don't know how to talk to children about that like what are we supposed to do say hey bring bring your child in so we can ask some questions right like, I, and then you end up tainting the investigation if you end up needing to do one because oh yeah i talked to the pastor and And next, you know, we're not professionals on this, and that's the big one. So,
0: yeah, getting the professional involved who knows how to talk to parents, who knows how to talk to someone who might be accused of this, knows how to talk to a six-year-old. Yes. That makes a lot of sense, but most churches, I assume, just be like, ah, we'll handle this, and then they just get, it goes down the toilet from there.
1: Well, yeah, because what happens is, what, what ends up happening is the, the family goes, hey, we want to submit to the church's authority. And many churches like talking about the authority of the pastors. They kind of overreach on how authoritative pastors really are. Yeah. But they're like, we want to submit to authority. That's a thing. And we don't want to be problems. And we're sure nothing's wrong. And they they kind of start, they talk themselves out of kind of really pursuing it. And then they hear more. It ha- then you find out another family has another question oh, this guy was, or woman was at another church years ago and found out that he left that church under some suspicion in the church. And then when another family six months later brings up something that happens, word gets out there. Like it is a mess of uh, transparency is key. I mean, literally as, as parents, you and I both have, I know, I can just tell you've had this conversation with your kids. Hey, lying never works out you always get caught. You always get caught. Like we've experienced that. Like right. my kids are like, how do you know? I'm like, this is just the way the world works. You always get caught. Same thing happens here. There's no good way to not be completely transparent and let professionals be involved and figure it out. Cause our job is to submit to other authorities also right. um, ministers. And there's a civil authority that we need to engage with. And especially if it's a claim of child sexual abuse, like you have to let someone else get involved. So would you yeah. wait
0: to, um, would you wait to communicate with the congregation until the authorities had made some kind of a pronouncement?
1: Yeah. Um, that that can be pretty quick. That can be, uh, and, and I would talk to the authorities like, Hey, this person's doing this in the, in, in, in our church. Um, like, yeah, uh, just put that person on leave. And, and then, every situation is different on what's going to happen with communication to the church. Um, so I would, I would really have to be in the moment. I can see where sometimes, um, communicating immediately, like this person has been removed until further investigation. That's, that's one thing versus, um, we're, we're on this, we're dealing with something and we're looking into it and then giving, you know, that's going to be different depending on every single situation. And, uh, And that's where I, I, I rely, like, you know, people frequently would think of me as like some type of expert on this and it's my specialty, but because every situation is different, I'll, you know, I I have pastor friends locally and far away who give me a call and go, Hey, this is what we're dealing with. Okay. How do we do this? And so every single case is different where, um, swift communication when appropriate is always a great thing to do. Um, you don't want to, unnecessarily over communicate um, because you, wanna, um, you want to you want to we're agents of truth not agents of individual loyalty and so you want to wait and see what happens since so that's why talking to the investigators is going to be very important Yep. Um, and I would I would say talk to the investigators you eventually have to call your church insurance church insurance wants you to not pay for liability And so church insurance companies frequently encourage churches to not communicate very much. That might be a really good strategy for not uh, being liable financially, which I don't think is really good, but it's a bad leadership and pastoral response. The goal is not how do we hold on to our money or is the church liable? If the church is liable, the church is liable. Um, And so avoiding liability and payment, is not the way of the kingdom. That's the way of the world.
0: Amen. So with the the scenario that you shared before, where it actually wasn't a situation that needed to be acted upon with any type of legal action and, and the guy wasn't a perpetrator, um, but you didn't know that at the time or, or the nope. situation that you heard of, I don't know if you were involved or not, but um, did you, if it was you, would you go to that person who had been accused by the six year old and say, Hey, this is what we've heard. I'm not making a judgment, um, but we have to put you on leave, just because this is our policy. Is it something like that?
1: It, it, it could be very yes. I, I would be talking having connecting with local law enforcement and having a good relationship with them is helpful. Yeah, they're actually really good on these things. Uh, many of them are fathers mm-hmm. or mothers, yep. and yep. Uh, and so and and they actually know better than anyone else what perpetrators are really like because they've arrested many of them. Um, and in most cases, um, it's dealing with the case is as easy as calling the local law enforcement and scheduling an appointment with the officer who supervises the investigation. And I would actually work with them and say, okay, we have this church. This is the role this person plays. Do you have any advice? They like being asked for help and advice. Do you have any advice on what's saying too much, what's not saying enough, like we want to handle this well. And they go, yeah, I would, there's an investigation, it's ongoing, I would say, blah, 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 blah. And they will help you figure out what to actually say. Um, And I would, you know, it's also good to have someone who is a a member of the church there in that conversation um, as a witness of the conversation. Um, And it communicates, when you do that, it communicates to the family we're taking this seriously yep. and when it comes out weeks or months later to the church, it communicates the entire church. We took this seriously. It communicates to the person with the allegation that they take it this being taken seriously to love, serve, and protect with excellence. Um, so I, I would see, um, I think in that case what happened was they talk to a law enforcement person. They did the investing. They did the. Um, they asked the child questions. They asked the parents questions. They went to talk and, and talk to that person. Um, and because I, I, I wait for the law enforcement to say, "Hey, we're going to contact this person in the next 24 hours." Well, that's important for them and me. Right. I don't want to get. I don't want to get a heads up. Like, right. hey, by the way, right. there's an allegation. And then, then they're like, "Who was it?" They they need to figure out their story. And oh, I a, see. A so you might not you might out you might not
0: go to that person at all. You let the no. the professionals go to the person.
1: Yes. Gotcha. And then, I, I, I'm in close close communication with the professionals on that one. I've had to do this with people in my life Sure. where I've I've encouraged people to call child protective services, and my job is not to go, "Hey, heads up, buddy," blah 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 is happening. But sit back, go silent for a day or two, and then they call and go, "Hey, I, I had child protective services show up at my front door. You did? What happened?" I yep. mean, I know the whole thing, but right. Um, and then they said, "Did you know about it?" Yes, I did. Like, um, why didn't you tell me? Uh, my priority is the protection of fill in the blank. Right. Um, don't you want me making sure? to go above and beyond for the protection of your child why right. is that the first question out of your mouth? Why didn't you tell me
0: right? That's a
1: weird response. And so in going back to the case the, the case study we had, um, so uh, they went to that person and then the investigation wasn't done. They put that person on leave and said, hey, it's going they're under the investigation. The guy said absolutely totally get it just so you know I didn't do anything wrong. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to comply 100% with any questions. They can have my computer. They can investigate anything. I told them that. Awesome.
0: So, yep.
1: And they said, okay, thank you for that humble response. Um, as soon as we have anything, we'll get back to you. The session is a Presbyterian church. The session was involved. They knew about stuff. So, uh, a few parents who were in the loop were knowledgeable of that. And, and then investigation came back. Um, and they said, there's no nothing to worry about. Actually, we we are confident, and they, the church had been following protocol, always having two people in the room at the same time. Yep. Not not family members, opposite sex. So if they have a man, they have a woman too. Yep. And they followed it to a T. I saw another another one where uh, it was a church discipline case, um, and they handled it perfectly again. I read, they they came into my office and the executive pastor read me the letter. They had letters and he was like, hey, I just just want to read this and see what you think. And he read one letter and I was just crying. It was so beautiful. And I thought, man, that's going to be such a gift to the survivor that a bunch of elders responded like that. And he looked at me and he said, that's the letter to the congregation. Mm. I was like, wow. I'm like, I mean, I'm in tears. It's so beautiful. Like mm. what's the, what does the letter to the survivor look like? He goes, Oh, it's even better. I was like, wow. I'm like, guys, he's like, what's like, this seems normal to us. I'm like, I'm so proud to be friends with pastors in a church that would write this letter. Like the, how clear it is. Now the guy was found guilty. He confessed to it, all that kind of stuff. But communication to the entire congregation, at some point, it's really important. Yes, and that's going to be and, and not that's where many churches fumble it. Yeah, is they don't want to get sued. They don't want to say too much. They don't want to say too little. And I've seen so many things go sideways with organizational communication. Yep, that's where, that's where I'd recommend getting a consultant in there to. Yeah,
0: you know, it sounds like it, it sounds like where most churches get in trouble is just assuming they they can handle it as opposed yeah. to like no i'm going to a first get the authorities in, involved cuz they have training i don't and b i'm going to seek counsel from other people like guys like you um to like help help me walk this through i i don't want to assume that i can handle this you know yeah.
1: i mean we again I'm, I'm not i'm not trying to sell books i'm not trying to like the, the organization grace it's netgrace.org we have uh, training programs for churches on abuse we have boschivigen Uh, with Shira Berkovitz wrote a book on safeguarding policies for churches. Mm -hmm. Um, We have resources there. Uh, How do you respond? And then we also do investigations when it, when it goes sideways, we end up doing investigations on the cover up. but we hope to never have to do investigations because we do our training on the front end and helping coach people on how to respond in the middle of it. Like I get a call one, at least once a month, either we have 85 churches in the diocese where I serve
2: mm-hmm. and
1: I, I'm here in Orlando where we have, like, I teach at you know, reform theological seminary. All my friends are either, you know, PCA pastors, you know, Reformed Baptists, got some Anglicans and some others. So I, you know, I'm part of a pastor's network and I get a call at least once a month. Hey, how do we, what do we do with this domestic abuse case? How do we handle this? He's on this board. Blah, 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 blah. He did this. She did this. What do we do? Like, I I end up going, hey, this is this is my hunch. This is what I think you should do. Start thinking about this. Let me go call some experts. So thankfully, I can get a hold of them quickly. But I'm going through legal experts, trauma experts, therapists, investigators. Like, hey, what's the best way to handle this one? So I think what you said, too many churches are um, presumptuous on their skill set that they can handle it. They can't. Yep. It's overwhelming that someone who ch- who works in this field like me has to go get wisdom from my wife and yep. all the other experts that I know.
0: Yeah. That's so good. That's so good. That's, I feel like, um, this conversation is, is a means we'll never be perfect, but a means to really help protect our church because you know? right. a lot of people are going to listen to this and, um, and just help for, for us as leaders. Cause yeah, there,
1: I just, there are wolves, um, who want for various reasons to come after people in the church because it's easier but it's also the work of satan i mean one of the most one of the most effective tools satan has is sexual abuse i mean think about it theologically what were adam and eve called to do to multiply and have dominion uh, one act that fulfills the cultural mandate of genesis is marital procreation right now that's not all marriage is for but to multiply and have dominion requires uh, marital intimacy sex and to distort it's not the core of who we are but it's part of our identity and who we are and what we're called to be doing Um, and so for satan to get the access to distort the very act of shalom of peace between husband and wife and to have that turned into a tool because that's just like we're called to make other images of God. Well, Satan wants other people to make images in the image of evil. Right. And that's what it does is sexual abuse. What's really sad is victims of sexual abuse frequently can become perpetrators of sexual abuse right, that right. making evil in its own image Amen. and have that infect like a virus and the devastation that it can do. Um, it can, it can be a huge barrier to relationships with other people in relationships with God. What are we called to do love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, this strikes at um, our relationship with God and is a significant barrier for relationships with others. Um, and so I, I think, abuse is a powerful tool of the enemy. So yeah. And now when you say protect our churches, um, some churches should not be. And so I, I heard that as protecting the people in the church, mm-hmm. like the sheep. Um, some people hear that as we got to protect our churches from accusations. Some churches nope. need the spotlight shown or shine. But um, yeah. uh, the brightness of transparency, because I've seen and I've heard the pastors who've said to multiple women who've been abused by husbands, God hates divorce. God hates divorce. Yeah. Uh, the wounds of Jesus healed the broken relationship with the world. Maybe your wounds can heal the broken relationship with your husband. Like I've heard horrible, horrible victim blaming theology. Um, some of those places are Ezekiel 34. They're run by sh- shepherds who are actually butchering the sheep. That's right. And uh, those places um, need to either be, in um, Jesus' language, they are a tomb of dead men's bones and a pit of vipers that need to be destroyed. And the language Jesus uses are millstones. And uh, some churches need a purification. Um, and it's been coming. Um, it's shocking. When we wrote our book 10 years ago, um, a lot of people were appreciative. Some people assumed that we had some type of ideological... You know, feminist ideology, because this is a women's issue and what's a what's a traditional Orthodox Christian doing traffic and like assuming the worst about our intentions. Wow. Uh, that we were man hating, um, you know, helping the false narrative of sexual abuse. It's not that bad. It's not one out of four women, one out of six men. Those are trumped up bad feminist numbers. Hmm. Um actually worse than that. But um you know, and is it really that big of a deal? And so we actually have the Me Too and Church too. Um, and I'm,
0: hashtag those yeah, hashtags,
1: those hashtags, yeah. And so it's, I'm I'm blown away that the number of podcasts that I get to be a part of, like this, that are talking about it openly, um, the blogs on many of the websites that are actually addressing this, the number of resources like Jennifer Greenberg, Rachel Den Hollander, um, um, uh, Andrew Andrew Schmetzer, a male survivor. I mean, there's so many resources out there now that just happened in the past 10 years. Um, The the fact that there's a conversation about this is really different. And what's been really sad about the Me Too movement um, as it relates to the church is that the one institution that needs a purification, like when, when Hollywood and politics and business world respond better to allegations of abuse than the church, that's an indictment on the church.
0: Amen. Amen. And
1: and the stories are still coming out, the cover-ups are still happening. And that's just disheartening that the church is lagging behind on I, I know there's some virtual virtue signaling. I, I get that. I get that some places are doing because it's good PR, sure. not because we're trying to do the right thing. Sure. I get that. But for good reasons they're making the right decision and for bad reasons the church is making bad decisions Mm -hmm. and when that's why when churches do it well when pastors and podcasters you're like let's talk about this Mm -hmm. and churches do it well it's just such a wonderful gift because it communicates so much to the survivors yeah and you look in the bible god seemed to have a special thing for people who were oppressed and disenfranchised and cast aside amen it's the pattern of the old and new testament um and I think if I'm looking at, I mean, Jesus's relationship with those on the outcast on the margins of society that were considered defiled and the way he related, related to the religious leaders is should get our attention. Um, I too often rail against the Pharisees and then I need to be more attentive to the fact that how pharisaical I am. I'm a religious leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have certain temptations as a religious leader of, uh, things like that and so i need to think i need to be attentive to that Uh, but god's god's disposition seems to be with the oppressed and abused and disenfranchised and marginalized and if the church doesn't look more like that um that's a dangerous place for us to be when we don't look like the foundation the, the cornerstone of our who we are
0: amen well justin this has been a great great conversation um I I thank you so much for your time, brother. Um, We've actually never talked in person. We've talked on the phone, uh, but never talked in person. And so it's a joy to have you here with us. Real quick, before we sign off, um, I don't even know how I found out. I think I was reading a tweet and one, you know how the internet works. One tweet leads to another, but I I found out somehow that you're, um, you have a podcast. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: I I listened to the podcast about sex trafficking in Orlando. Yes. And um I just did a podcast about sex trafficking um, in Madison. But through listening to that podcast, I saw that season two, you guys are gonna be dealing um, with racial justice issues in all of season two. Is that correct?
1: The entire if yes, season? Yes, you are correct. Season one was just it was I was with my friend Jim Davis, who's yep. the pastor of Orlando Grace. It's a Reformed Baptist Acts 29 Church and the Episcopalian who teaches at RTS. So it's a good pairing. It's like a start of a joke. We (laughs) we interviewed local, local people. And so my wife was one of those people with the organization she works with on sex trafficking and other professors, pastors, just other people. And then, uh, with the stuff regarding racial justice and injustice, um, the entire season is thinking through conversations with trauma experts, historians, um, uh, black church leaders um and i'm just going through the entire we're gonna it's called as in heaven yeah that, so, the
0: name of the podcast as in heaven so you can just search in your podcast um yeah uh what's it called The podcast app for as in heaven
1: yeah okay. and the website's as in hvn.com so uh, as in hvn heaven okay um, hvn.com and yeah it's all racial justice racial injustice and when we of, um, black lives matter. What does that mean as a slogan and as an organization? Mm-hmm. Um, right. How, and, and, and the tone is to be educational and assuming the best of our listeners. Um, when people say things like, I don't see color. Well, we asked that question to, uh, and, and the response was amazing. Um, in uh, And and the person said, "Hey, well, you know, in the '60s and '70s, this little snippet. In the '60s and '70s, I don't see color is the right way to say that in the cultural rhetoric of what was being done with civil rights and how that was being done. Is I don't see color now after there's been so much conversation about color. I don't see color if the intent is to communicate." I'm not a racist. There's a different way to say that, sure. that you, you're not discriminatory with regard to color, but it also, it sounds tone deaf to people who have experienced trauma right. with regard to racism. So helping, helping people think through that. Cause with where things are culturally, we, we think getting some experts in the room to talk about this. We just asked a bunch of our guests who are African American black what are some of your experiences with law enforcement? Yep, good or good or bad. Just tell your story. Yep, just that's it. Yep, and so we need to listen. And what was amazing was everyone said what we said about the power of listening. We said, "What do you want the church to do with this moment? Like, what are you hoping for?" Every single person said, "I wish the church would. I wish Christians would listen to more of their brothers and sisters as a, as a part of." It feels like. But but politics just that politics, Justin, that politics imp- is politics is the yes. lens through which yes. we're being interpreted. Yes. Instead of actually trusting us, why are they being suspicious about us but not about their political leaders? That's they right. should be suspicious about the political leaders That's right. and trust us. We're brothers and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. And so hearing that was just overwhelming. We had a specialist who is an a um, uh, Sheila uh Sheila Y Wy- Rose Wise and she's she wrote a book called Healing from Racial Trauma. It was amazing.
2: Hmm.
1: I know about trauma, about abuse trauma. Yep. So to hear her go, I mean, I was, she was just opening my eyes to so many things I never would have thought about.
0: Well, so. I think we need to have you back and uh, okay. dive into some of this. Um, I assume the podcast is, um, tar- is it targeting uh, majority culture people yes. in terms of education. So educating yes. majority culture people about the experience of minorities.
1: And it's a bunch of, so it's me. Uh, I am, i um, Caucasian, 46 year old male, Jim Davis. I don't know how old he is, but he's younger than me. Um, he's a white, uh, pastor and Mike, Michael Aitchison, who is a, um, black church planter. Well, he he's a pastor. He planted the church. It succeeded and it's growing. And so this, the three of us, uh, one of them's always the host. I, Mike and I switch out, um, And so that's, there's now three of us who are part of the conversation. We didn't think, so a lot of it is Michael talking about his experience, knowledge, wisdom, and expertise um, from his experience and his studies. But when Mike, uh, Jim and I aren't doing that, it's literally, they get to overhear us going, hey, what about this? We're talking to people in our churches where we lead and serve, what about this? So it really is us asking questions and basically it's them listening to us learning from these people. Yeah. That's Foster so good, in, man. So, inform good. Us. so good. we're not, we're not the experts. We brought you here because we want you to teach us. Yeah. And so they get to overhear uh, us learning.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm really glad that I, um, brought this up because our church is in the midst of thinking about these things. There's been a lot of a lot of activity, um, obviously, in Minneapolis with George Floyd. It's just four hours away, but we had an incident in Kenosha, Wisconsin, just a few days ago. Um, and so Wisconsin is really, really thinking about these issues right now in a, in a profound way. And and so many people at our church are thinking about this. Um, I'm thinking about this. I have a, I have a black daughter um, through adoption. And so um, I look forward to maybe having you back and we can talk about this more specifically about what you're learning and and what I'm learning and um we've had a uh, we've had a, a one podcast already dealing with these issues with the African American pastor in Detroit who's was a part of the X29 network named Tyler St. Clair and actually going to do a part 2 with him um next week mm. but uh yeah I'm just as the podcast is called as in heaven correct
1: as in heaven okay and There's so like, from the lord for as in heaven and it um we're going to drop the first three episodes. We're going to do an overview, just yep. like you know, episode zero, and then one, two, and three on September twenty third. Okay. Just so we can, have, and they're evergreen. They're going to be relevant for years to come. Okay. Uh, we are talking about specific things that happened in the recent past and and current situations. Yep. Uh, and it's just going to be, it'll be dropping in September, and we'll be dropping another episode. I think we have twenty something episodes. Um, up, up through and um, so like December. is it
0: once a week once a month once a week once a well, week well, okay
1: once a
0: week. well justin again thank you so much it's been an absolute joy and so helpful um for me as a leader and for our church i think and other leaders um your your um your presence your words are just filled with grace and truth and just the gospel reminder you gave me today is is fuel for my day um <laughs> so thank you so much my friend
1: you're welcome. Thank you for, uh, giving the platform of your podcast and, um, I'm assuming people at your church listen to this. It's, I don't take that for granted that a leader in a church who has a platform is talking about these issues and I, I don't take it for granted. So thank you very much. Thank you for your questions and your example, and I'm grateful for it. And I may, may, uh, Uh, may we continue to be able to do this and talk honestly about these issues and and, because as ministers the one thing we have is the proclamation of the light of the gospel that deals with sin and its destruction everywhere it's found and you know what Jesus saw through saw through he will what Jesus started he will see through to completion
0: Amen. and
1: uh, I I love what you're doing so thank you very much it's my honor to um, give, give some time to be a small part of what you're doing